Hello and welcome to Three Worlds podcast episode number two. I'd like to thank everybody that's uh, sent emails and, and contacted me about the last one. And uh, we've got a couple of questions and, and bits and pieces from that, so I'll sort of start off with that. Um, I want to say particularly thanks to Andy and Michelle. Andy uh, emailed and uh, asked sort of what my background was, ex- exactly what I did, um, what what my practice was. And Michelle asked um, how I became a shaman. And I'd like to start with that one first. Michelle, I'm not a shaman. So I think it's important probably to say what a shaman is. Um, so let's let's actually start with that. It's a really difficult one. Okay. Um, a shaman is somebody that works on behalf of the people to be an intermediary between humans and the spirit world, I guess, on the most basic of levels. That's kind of how you would describe it. The word itself is Siberian. And if you want to take an anthropological perspective on it, a shaman is someone who uses a drum to go into trance. And when they are in trance, they journey, i.e. they go outside of their body, or their consciousness goes outside of their body, and they journey to the other world's of the shamanic cosmology. Now, the other worlds of the shamanic cosmology are the upper world, the middle world, which is a parallel sort of alternative spiritual version of this one, and the lower world. Now, what makes somebody a shaman? I'm not a shaman, but I do do shamanic practice. I think probably the main thing that makes somebody a shaman is that they have been initiated um by their people into being a shaman saying that most shamans would say that they probably weren't shamans or they would say generally um i'm pathetic you should have seen the shamans that taught me or the shamans in the past were much better than the shamans today so that seems to be a general sort of uh, thing that i hear very often when i'm working with with people that are actually doing shamanism shamans like I said, generally don't call themselves shamans. It it worries me sometimes. I, I look at people's websites and they're kind of calling themselves shamans and they're doing bits of Reiki and they're doing bits of goodness knows what. It's not shamanism. And I suspect that most of them probably aren't shamans, although I shall probably get hit by a lightning bolt for that. Who knows? <laughs> so if, uh, if a, a culture has some form of institutionalized, and I use that word in a very loose way, but institutionalized recognition of a role of somebody being a shaman, then there are generally prescribed ceremonies and initiations that are given perhaps by already existing shamans, which incorporates the new person into the body of the tradition. So that's what I mean by shamanism generally is that it's somebody who acts as an intermediary between the spirits and the people. And I'm not sure that you have to necessarily use a drum. I mean, some anthropologists would say, for instance, that uh, the the, the shamanic practices in South America that use ayahuasca 
are not really shamanism. Um, a lot of anthropologists would say that Native American traditions like the Lakota and, and, and other sort of traditions around the plains are not shamanism. And many Native Americans say that they don't have shamans. So you get into a minefield of, of actually sort of trying to work out what the definition is. Some people sometimes say to me, well, what's the difference between what you do and what a shaman does? And, and if they're doing kind of the same things, then why are they shamans and why am I not a shaman? And that's a really difficult one to answer too. I publish a magazine, I create medicine objects for people, I run ceremonies for people, I do healings. But that doesn't make me a shaman, that just makes me somebody who does shamanic practice. I think it's important for people in the West to not label themselves shamans, partially because I think it can be a real ego trip, a real sort of power trip too. And I think that there's the danger that if people call themselves shamans, and let's face it, the word is a very popular word at the moment, you call yourself a shaman and maybe you've done a weekend workshop or something like that, or you've done a couple of things. And I think it devalues the word. I mean, if, if I had done a couple of workshops and suddenly proclaimed myself to be a shaman, then that really doesn't actually say very much about what real shamans do. And I think the other danger to that is that I may do stuff that really isn't shamanic and call it shamanism because it, it's become a, a sort of word for all seasons. And that, that concerns me too. Like I said a little while ago, it's like people who do reiki and bits and pieces all over the place and they call it shamanism, and it isn't. I've met people that, you know, say, oh, yes, somebody taught me shamanic journeying. They haven't done any shamanic journeying at all. They've done guided meditation with someone doing a voiceover and leading them down a garden path and through a wood, and that isn't a shamanic journey. And I think that the, there's a great danger in the word being devalued. I think it's important also to differentiate between the word shamanism and animism. Uh, a culture that lives close to the land and has a sense that all things in nature are alive, they're living an animistic life. They have an animistic worldview. They see that all things are imbued with spirit. We in the West don't really do that. Uh, another one of my teachers had a wonderful phrase. He, he said really that the West was suffering from dead matter thinking that we saw objects as being intrinsically dead. And so I think that what happens very often with people is that they get an impression that maybe a stone has got a spirit or maybe they, they see the spirit of, of a piece of landscape or they, they're working with that. They're beginning to understand that creation is imbued with spirit beings and they call that shamanism. That isn't shamanism. I, I define shamanism in that respect as applied animism. It's like you can have an animistic society, an animistic view of the world, and within that there will be specialists who are the shamans, who interact between the people and those animistic forces. And the rest of the, the population may do minor shamanic acts. They may hold little ceremonies and they may... They may sort of smudge, you know, burn smoke to, uh, to purify their house or whatever they do. But that isn't really shamanism. The shamans are the technicians. The shamans are the specialists. We can all 
strive to live an animistic life and hold an animistic view. And I think that that's, that's a great, beautiful thing that shamanism in the broadest sense has brought to Western culture um, to get out of that dead matter thinking. But that isn't shamanism. Just because you have a view that everything is alive and you might sort of say hello to the rocks and hello to the trees and give an offering to the waters or whatever, that isn't really shamanism. That's animism. Shamanism, I think, is much more specific than that and much more focused. It's really acting as an intermediary. It's acting in direct communication with the spirits of creation. How I got into these traditions... Um, was through psychotherapy training. Uh, it's a kind of a long, long story, and, uh, and I won't go into too much detail because it's not that interesting. But um, I always felt, when I was a kid, really, to to uh, to do ceremonies and to sort of pray to the four directions and, and whatever. That that seemed a very natural thing to for, for me, and I did that really quite instinctively. And I've always sort of seen spirit animals you know, beings that kind of aren't there in inverted commas. Um, I trained as a psychotherapist and uh, some of the stuff that I did touched onto medicine wheel. Uh, medicine wheel teachings are something I'll come back to another time and talk about, but it's a sort of animistic system of understanding the world. It's not shamanism, but it's it really kind of goes hand in hand with shamanism very well, and I'll come back to that. So some of the therapy training that I did kind of touched on that and I was working in a psychiatric day centre and uh, the rest of the staff were kind of reading Castaneda and um, they passed me the books and I read them and uh, though I didn't completely agree with everything that I read in them, there was enough in there that kind of made me think like, hey, this is the stuff that's kind of been happening to me in a small way. Um, and it was actually then that I discovered what it was called. I discovered the word shamanism. Um, so that's how I got into it, really. Uh, and then I, I was sort of uh, in coincidences, brackets, there's no such animal, kind of gave me chances to go on workshops and things like that. So I, I sort of started to work with it in that way and, uh, and it gradually took over my life. So what do I do? I have a whole variety of practices I started off doing uh, Medicine Wheel, which is, like I said, sort of Native American based. And I work with a lot of Native American teachers, um, variety of people, some of them very traditional, some of them not at all traditional, some of them native, some of them Anglo. And I learned different systems. I'm a bit of a maverick. I've never, ever wanted to apprentice to anybody and I've never wanted to kind of sit and learn a specific system um, so I've got a I've got a, a pretty broad depth of knowledge about different systems of shamanism and medicine wheel which of course helps me a lot in my job with the magazine so I started working with medicine wheel teachings and learning different wheels um, I worked with Sunbear and I worked with Chuck Storm, Wolf Storm, Hynimust. I worked with Wallace Black Elk and I've worked with other teachers, mostly around the, the Plains peoples, uh, Oglala and Lakota teachers. And I started to work with the pipe. I was taught pipe traditions by an Oglala man. That was some time ago, so I, I now... Uh, 
hold a pipe and I do pipe ceremonies for people when they ask and I do a monthly pipe ceremony that's open to anybody that wants to come. Again, I'd like to talk about the pipe at a future time because that's that's something that uh, is is also very controversial because of native rights and native identity and I think it's very important to respect those things. But I do work with the pipe and have done for many years Beyond that, I've always, since I was a kid, uh, really had a kind of interest in Tibetan Buddhism. And I never really found it very easy to find a Tibetan teacher. I went to a few meditation classes and kind of got spat out quite quickly because it wasn't Buddhism. I just felt like, no, it isn't. This, this isn't it. This is not what it's about. So I could never kind of quite equate what I felt Buddhism ought to be with my experiences of it. So spirit kind of gave me Native American things to learn. And, and I worked with those teachers for many, many years. Eventually, I found uh, a Buddhist tradition in the Nyingma tradition, which is uh, much more shamanic. I'll, I'll explain what Nyingma is. Nyingma are the red hats in Tibetan Buddhism. It's the oldest school of Tibetan Buddhism. It's the very first school of Buddhism that uh, Padmasambhava or Guru Rinpoche uh, brought to Tibet in the 8th century. Now, Guru Rinpoche Padmasambhava, same person, different names, is considered to be the first shaman or an archetypal shaman by many of the shamanic communities in the Himalayas, such as Nepalese shamanism and, uh, and, and others. Um, in Buddhism, he's considered to be the tantric Buddha. But a lot of the practices are very shamanic and they merged with the indigenous Bon shamanism that was in Tibet when Padmasambhava arrived there. So they do really have a lot that's very shamanic within them. So I, I learned some of those traditions. It's not a major part of my study, but it is quite a major part of my practice. I keep a Buddhist altar which uh, has, uh, has statues of the beings that I work with, and I've been empowered into Tibetan practices by the Rinpoche that I worked with. And I do those on mostly a daily basis, which involves singing songs to Padmasambhava using a double-sided chod drum. And uh, I make water offerings on the altar in, uh, in seven bowls and uh, light uh, butter lamp candles and all that sort of thing, which is very Buddhist. To me, that's very important. I recite mantras too. So I do a Padmasambhava and a Green Tara practice most days. I've gradually learned little bits and pieces uh, along the way uh, from different places that, that are about Tibetan shamanism. And so I work with that too. And gradually I've also fine-tuned it to really discover that a lot of what I thought of as Tibetan Buddhism is actually Mongolian shamanism. So I've started to work in a more Mongolian way too. My main teacher at this time, my main living teacher at this time, rather than a spirit teacher, is uh, a person called Jonathan Horowitz, which uh, he's uh, an American who lives in Denmark, and I work with Jonathan quite a lot and hold him in very high regard. He teaches the classic shamanic journey, and I've been doing journeying 
for the whole length of time that I've been doing shamanism, but I've been working much more uh, intensively with it since I've been working with Jonathan, which I guess is probably about six years. Um, so I now journey and work with my spirits on, on quite a regular basis too. And my spirits have taught me things. And that's been quite wonderful because I've often then subsequently found out that what my spirits have taught me has actually been part of either Tibetan or Mongolian traditions. Um, I had a lovely experience. I, I paint tankers for people sometimes. Tankers are the uh, the Tibetan uh, scroll paintings. They're painted on uh, cotton. And uh, I... I was painting a painting of uh, some protector beings for a uh, a Buddhist lama, and he was interested in the shamanic stuff that I was doing. So he actively encouraged me to journey to my spirits to find out how to paint the tanker and if there was anything I needed to do. So I went to my spirits on a journey and uh, was then taken to meet uh, other spirits that initiated me on the journey into the tanker painting for this particular tanker and they gave me instructions as to other beings that needed to be put into the tanker uh, and the whole composition of the tanker which I then took back to the Lama and said this is what my spirits say and he said that absolutely bears out with what my Rinpoche says so that's how I did the tanker, and the, the, the spirits gave me a practice to do before I painted it each day. So that, that was a wonderful sort of um, uh, way of, of getting confirmation as to what I was doing, and I find that happens a lot. So I do that sort of work. What I actually do for people on a shamanic point of view is, uh, apart from holding pipe ceremonies for people, I do do healing work for people if they if they require it. I do tend to do quite a lot of work uh, journeying to work with dead people to take messages and to, to sort of liaise between the dead and the living sometimes. Um, the healing practices I was given to me on journey uh, from my spirits is a, a, a wrathful healing practice, which is very, very similar to... Uh, some of the Mongolian and some of the Tibetan and Ladakh shamanic practices. I work with a wrathful Tibetan being, deity if you wish to call it that, the Tibetan word for it is Yidam, which means an awareness being. Um, he is a wrathful protector being called Mahakala. And I work with Mahakala and... I actually, this this is strange, and this is something that, that often we don't talk about in Western shamanic practice, but it's very prevalent in many other cultures. I get taken over by Mahakala. Now, the Mongolian word for this being taken over by the spirits, which is absolutely expected in Mongolian shamanism, is Ongod Urud. Now, that means being taken over completely by the spirit, and it's a little bit like being... Uh, in spirit possession. So when I'm doing the, the the wrathful healing with people, I get taken over by Mahakala, and Mahakala then does the healing. And I really am sort of, it's a strange experience. I'm in the back of my head watching what's going on. And uh, that's about the best that I can describe it. It is odd. And the first time it happened to me, I wasn't expecting it, and it scared the shit out of me. 
And it is a very strange experience. But as I say, it, it happens a considerable amount in different cultures. And if it doesn't happen in Mongolian shamanism, then they say that it's not really happening. So I accept it now and I work with it in that way. So that in a nutshell is my practice. Um, because of the place that I live, I obviously try and work with the spirits of the land here. I try and be sensitive to the spirits of the land here. But in a way, that's more animism than shamanism. It's terribly difficult to actually define shamanism, as I said a few minutes ago. And really, it's a kind of sliding scale or, a you know, a sort of the, the colours merge, the, the words merge. There's no real defined edge to the to the to the meanings. So you have to be with it in that way. Am I being shamanic when I go out and make an offering of, of tobacco or food or milk or whatever to the spirits of the land? When I put up prayer flags in my garden, is that being shamanic or is it just being animistic? It's terribly difficult to say. I think really for me it's just about living in consciousness of the spirits all around and trying to live in a respectful way with them in that way. So that's what I do. That's, that's in a sort of basic overview of my shamanic practice. And uh, I think that's probably just about enough for this, this particular podcast. So you can contact me, nick at sacredhoop.org. And you can visit my website, which is nicholaswood.net. And you can visit the Sacred Hoop website, which is sacredhoop.org. Thank you for listening and I'll speak to you next time. Bye.